Welcome to Unlocking Leadership. I'm Claire Carpenter and I'm your host. I'm joined today by Robin Sutara. Robin is the Chief Data Officer for Microsoft UK. Thank you so much for finding time to join our podcast today. What a joy to meet you. Thank you so much, Claire. I appreciate the opportunity and it's it's so nice to meet you and have this conversation. Um, so Robin, you have a fascinating background and history to share with our listeners. I wonder if we should start off by exploring your slightly unusual route to the CDO role at Microsoft UK. I would love you to share your, your story with us, please. So I do have actually a very untraditional path, although I, I would argue I, I started out in what was intended to be a traditional path. I started uh, my undergraduate studies in computer engineering, more years than I would probably care to admit on recording, <laughs> early, early sort of integration of mechanical engineering with electrical engineering and sort of how do you think about AI. These early classes were Ada and Fortran, if that tells you how long ago it was. So languages that don't even get used anymore today. But uh, due to lack of funding, I, I never did complete my formal studies. Typically within the United States, when you can't afford schooling, you either take out significant amounts of loans or you do what I did and you enlist in the U.S. military. And so I actually enlisted in the U.S. Army where I had the distinct pleasure of working on the electrical and weapon systems of the Apache helicopter. And so most people would view that probably as far from technology or as far from a data sort of role as you could get. But there were actually lots of synergies if you think about, you know, how do you troubleshoot electrical systems? How do you troubleshoot weapon systems? The Apache helicopter at that time was early, early sort of leading edge technology when you think of things like heads up displays and and sort of the capabilities that are now integrated into people's cars. Mm -hmm. But at the time, it really was sort of the bleeding edge of what technology was capable of. So it was a great opportunity for me to really get that sort of exposure to what amazing things technology can help us do in society and deliver sort of capabilities and functionality. But I have to admit, after four years and I was preparing to get out of the service, you sort of look around and you say, okay, what's next? And there weren't very many people who had Apache helicopters sitting in their backyard, right, that needed sort of repairs. Of those that did have helicopters, very little had, you know, Hellfire missiles or 50 millimeter machine guns sitting on them. And so what is the next step, right, when you do something? something like that. And and so for me, it was computer hardware. Mm. It was a very similar sort of track on how do I take this competency and the skill of troubleshooting into the civilian world. And so very fortunate to obtain a role doing hardware repair. However, I did realize as I sat within my little dark corner of a room and looked around and saw 15 men and I was the only female in the room, that this likely was not going to be my long-term career path and sort of sitting there to do that. And so I've always had a, a history in my career of trying to determine what experiences can I gain within my role, but what other sort of formal education or other things can I also add to make me better for my next role or my next function. And so for me, that was pursuing my Microsoft certification, so my MCSE certification at the time. So I would work during the day and do MCSE school at night. Very, very fortunate at the time, this was the late 90s, that Microsoft was hiring pretty extensively. And so after I completed my MCSE course, I actually received a phone call 
call from a vendor company looking to hire people to come into Microsoft to support Internet Explorer 5, which was just coming out for a release. And so they needed people to come in and do support for that on Windows 3.1 and Windows 95. So, so very, very fortunate that I, I took this course. I, I ended up coming in to Microsoft via a vendor company, and then after about a year, became a full-time employee. And that was about 22 years ago. I've had an amazing career within the company since then, doing everything from consumer support. I moved into Premier, our enterprise support, supporting some of our biggest auto manufacturers globally, both Japanese as well as U.S. out of the city of Detroit. Moved into what was a startup at Microsoft as we first started getting into the cloud. You know, essentially we were creating groups internally to figure out how do you deliver services in this cloud-based world that no one had ever heard of before. And so how do you talk to organizations about leveraging things like business productivity out of the cloud as opposed to within your environment? And like a startup externally, this one within Microsoft also collapsed. It didn't last very long, about a year. And so at that point, I realized looking around, you know, what were my skill sets? What were my attributes? While I was in Detroit, I actually had the opportunity to attend law school full-time while I was working full-time. So I would work Monday through Friday. I did law school on Saturday and Sunday and passed the bar in the state of Michigan and the state of Washington at the conclusion of that. And so as this startup was collapsing, I started to look around and think, how can I leverage this legal background plus this technology background and put it together? And what sort of value can that bring to the business? Then I started to foray into the business side of the house. So I had been pretty technical up until that point and started to realize there are some values of understanding technology that you can bring to a business conversation, particularly when you work within a, an organization that has so much focus on technology. And so uh, really starting to bring that together in a way that allowed me to drive internal processy change, which often requires a lot of collaboration and a lot of negotiation, very similar skills that you need as a lawyer. How do you bring that into the business on a technology perspective? I did a several roles, which, which sort of required that technology knowledge plus the business knowledge within the office of the CTO. Most recently, prior to, to this role, I was the chief operations officer for Azure Data Engineering, so really trying to, to help very, very technical resources understand how do you actually think about data to drive internal processes and make internal decisions. And so last year when the UK subsidiary for Microsoft said, we're going to create a chief data officer role, I was really sort of groundbreaking for the company. No other subsidiary in the world had such a role. And so first one globally that was sort of created. Now, I'm super happy to say several other countries. I think that last uh, last I looked, there were 20 or 25 other countries have now created this chief data officer role to really think about how does Microsoft internally use data to drive decisions? How do we become people-centric and, and sort of democratize data internal to the organization? But also, how do we help customers think about data strategy, data culture, data implementation, and all of the aspects and attributes that go around that? So I've now been doing this role for about a year, and it's just been an amazing experience, I think, particularly in the, in the UK, where I'm very fortunate to work with such mature customers that have done 
amazing, amazing work with their data and just continue to push the boundaries on how do they truly transform as the result of things like the pandemic, Brexit. There's just so many things that organizations are trying to respond to and use their data to do those decisions. So yeah, it's been an amazing, amazing ride and super happy to be here. Not even sure where to start with so many things <laughs> that I have for you, but let's start with the basic one. This chief data officer role is fascinating for me because it is it is a relatively new role, even for the world of data, isn't it? Where do you put your focus and energy in terms of how you bring that to life? What's really important about that for you? Yeah, it's super interesting. I think when people think about the chief data officer role, you're right, it's only been around for 10 or 15 years, I think. Uh, And and most organizations tend to look at it as a technology Mm. role. But I would argue it's one of those roles that actually requires people, process, and technology. Mm. You can create the best platform to give people access to data, but if they don't use it, if they don't actually change the way that they do their day-to-day functions and their day-to-day tasks, then the data itself has no value. Mm -hmm. So I think you'll hear organizations talk about data as an asset or data as the next oil. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But but again, it, it becomes that How do you truly drive a data culture within the organization that allows people to feel empowered to make decisions based on data and then to iterate as new data is created? How do you now give employees the flexibility to be able to be agile in in leveraging the data to transform your business? I'm thinking about how there might be a response to the volume of data or or the manipulation of it, which people maybe feel a lack of confidence in terms of how they approach data and how it's useful for them in a strategic way. The interesting part, I think, is as you're driving that data culture, I think lots of organizations talk about data quality and how do we get the business owners to actually own their data mm-hmm. by creating an ecosystem where they're empowered to actually access and use data to make their data decisions. They then feel this sense of ownership for ensuring that the data is of the highest quality coming into the systems. And so it's always interesting for me to sit with an organization who talks about my data lake has become a data swamp. I just can't get anything of value out of it. And so then you go back to what what business use cases are you trying to drive off the data platform? And as well, we sort of gave it to this part of marketing or this part of finance, but yeah. but they don't really use it. And so, well, that's why it's a swamp, right? Nobody actually, because they're not using it, there isn't this, this sense of ownership or, or accountability for the data that they're putting into the system. Mm-hmm. And so it's been interesting. Microsoft has gone through their own sort of transformation. I, I think a, a great example of that is Amy Hood, our CFO, definitely has a, a, an organization of finance resources And they were actually using multiple Excel spreadsheets and spending hundreds and hundreds of man hours to do things like forecasting to provide to the market sort of how well we thought we were going to do as a company. And she really took the approach and said, we will be data driven. We will come up with a modern finance platform and everyone will use a single source of truth. And once you sort of have that leadership guidance and direction, there, there is almost this accountability of the business groups to ensure that the data that they're putting into the system because they're being accountable for the results coming out of it. Mm-hmm. It, it creates a, a healthy tension, I think, between the two that really helps an organization create that that culture to change. 
I'm seeing lots of opportunities for this kind of strategy being able to support things like sustainability, the people agenda. I wonder what sort of examples you have of perhaps Microsoft customers who've done some wonderful or innovative things in this space. I have to admit, I, I was um, a little bit of a fangirl last week. I had the opportunity to meet His Royal Highness, where we shared a great example, I think, of environmental social issue that was part of our Microsoft AI for Good program. Mm. It was specifically a solution uh, developed in conjunction with Heathrow Airport, trying to tackle some of the illegal wildlife trade. And so what would happen is legacy systems would tend to look for things like ivory in the shape of a full tusk, but Mm -hmm. that's not typically how they were transporting those types of items. They were cutting it up. They were changing the shape of it or the format. And so between Heathrow and Microsoft, as well as several other partners, they came together to try to figure out how do we leverage data and machine learning to solve for these types of problems? How do we look at things like the density of the contents of a bag to try to determine, are they transporting things like skulls or ivory or, right, the things that the illegal wildlife enforcement community is trying to track? Uh, And how do we create enough data sets so that the machine can get smarter about sort of understanding and stopping that? And then how do you leverage that to then create entire ecosystems of the criminal network that existed around it, it tends to not be the couriers that are responsible for the overall illegal wildlife trade, right? It goes further up the chain. And so how do you use things like who purchased the tickets? What organization are they associated with? What connections do they have? What financial information do we have about those organizations? Data really does become foundational if you think about solving for some of these environmental issues that we have. And so that was a great example, I think, of where multiple organizations were able to come together and then really leverage technology by getting it into the hands of the people who have brilliant ideas on how to solve for for these problems. So again, it comes to technology as a piece, but you really have to have the people who understand the problem Mm -hmm. and can apply the data in the right way to reach solutions. Yeah, that's a fascinating example and really linked into where we're at at the moment in terms of thinking about climate and thinking about sustainability and thinking about all of those things. And I feel like there's so much for data to do as part of that growth and investment in those areas. Absolutely. Absolutely. I couldn't help but notice as you shared your background with us earlier in the earlier years, how much of your time was spent in a very male dominated environment. I'm thinking about your time in the military to start with working on the Apaches. And then I'm thinking about, I love that picture of you in a darkened room somewhere, (laughs) mending your hardware. I know that you're a passionate advocate for women in technology and you're a wonderful role model for that. I wonder what you think about what's going on now to attract more diversity into the world of technology. We want diverse opinions. We want diverse views. If you think about the world problems that we're trying to solve, if you think about even just solving within your organization a, a technical issue, et cetera, the value that differing views of opinion bring to the table to be able to to address some of those things go beyond just gender, to be honest with you. If we look around the table, we really need to try to bring as many varying views and opinions. And and I think gender is absolutely critical in that diverse background and, and bringing those unique perspectives and the unique experiences Ultimately, often you'll you'll get varying levels of, of sort of 
tenure and seniority and capabilities, I guess, or maybe confidence in their capabilities when you try to bring more diversity into the into the workforce. And mm-hmm. and so oftentimes what I find when I'm coaching new to career or new within the industry is the extreme value you bring by not necessarily having a traditional background or the perspective that you bring through that traditional STEM background just can help us solve problems that we haven't even thought of yet. And so making sure that we, through every avenue, whether it's recruiting into the system, whether it's encouraging in the lower education, whether it's bringing people into the workforce that have been out of the workforce for whatever reason, how do we expand sort of what we expect from technology roles to bring in those diverse opinions, which could be from the business? I mean, you can see from my own background, I didn't stay in technology the entire way. Mm. And so if somebody had looked and said, you know, you've done operations. I don't really think that you should be in technology anymore. I'd like to think that people would, you know, sort of feel that that's a gap within the business. And so mm. how do you bring those those capabilities? And I absolutely think we have to focus on ensuring that you have multiple voices at the table, whether it's because of gender, ethnicity, sexual orientation, there's all sorts of reasons that we should be bringing an eclectic group of people together. And ultimately, it's going to result in better solutions, better technology, better organizations, and better decisions. Yeah. And I think there's something about feeling safe to be at that table as well, isn't there? There's something about you may be there and feel that you've earned your seat, but actually, have you got a voice? I wonder how we keep encouraging the people at the table to speak as well. I once had a a wonderful male ally who told me, take your seat at the table, right? Like it, the representation at the table, because I find what happens often is that the the minority in the room tends to sit toward the back, right? Mm-hmm. They tend to not actually take the seat at the table. And so absolutely, you're in the room because you have the right to be in the room. And just keeping in mind that, again, you bring a unique perspective. And so your voice should be heard. And, and hopefully, right, you'll have others at the table that are that are willing to help and support if you don't feel comfortable to articulating your voice. And if you don't feel comfortable at the table, then leverage your network and your allyships and all of those things away from the table. Because the more you become comfortable in articulating those things, the more likely you are to start being able to, to voice your opinion in the, in the bigger scenario, but absolutely never underestimate the power and the perspective and the the capabilities that you bring, which got you the invitation to the table in the first place. You mentioned that you coach people who are coming, who are new to the business or new to new to technology. I wonder, we've been talking about the power of bringing people up, giving them a voice and a seat at the table. There's lots of ways that organizations can support that, isn't there? Through either coaching or mentorship, or sponsorship by someone else in the organization. What's your experience of that or understanding of the different roles there? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a great thing to call out the distinction, right? Because I think oftentimes people find what what they call a mentor and it, it they're really operating in a coaching capacity mm. or you expect them to be sort of a sponsor, but they're really more of a mentor. So from my perspective, coaching tends to be very transactional. There's a single situation. There's a single sort of uh, thing going on that you want advice on, on how do I solve for this problem today, make progress and, and sort of resolve that so that I can get my job done. Mm. Mentorship to me is 
and I've used mentors throughout my career, often to build a capability or a competency that I don't have or that I want to develop. Mm -hmm. I remember several years ago, I reached out to a, a corporate vice president within Microsoft and said, you know, I had the opportunity to watch you speak to this group of people. And I was very impressed by the way that you demonstrated empathetic listening. And for me, that's an area of opportunity that I would like to grow because I don't think that I, you know, demonstrated as well as what I observed you being able to deliver against this organization. And she was just super gracious, reached right back out and said, absolutely, let's get some one-on-one time and let's have a conversation about how I grew that competency. And so for me, mentors often are, how do, how do I build a certain skill? How do I build a competency that's going to help me grow my career, that's going to help me be more efficient in my job today, but that's also going to position me for where I want to go, what do I want to be when I grow up? Sponsorship, I think, is a little more difficult, right? Because for me, I have to admit, up until about five years ago, I didn't have a sponsor. Mm -hmm. I had never thought about a distinction between a mentor and a sponsor. I always sort of felt like, you know, I work really hard. My current manager knows how well I'm doing. They'll be my sponsor. They'll look out for, for me and, and help me find my next role. I found that that doesn't happen, right? It often required a pretty heavy lift for me to build my network, to generate the right connections, to know mm. where the next opportunity was going to come from. I think today I do have a formal sponsor and and there is a, you know, a verbal overt agreement that, you know, my expectation is that you have visibility into parts of the business and parts of the organization that I don't necessarily have exposure to. And because we've done this project in the past, because we've done this work together in the past, these are the attributes, skills, and, and strengths that I think I could bring to the business in a different capacity. And I'm asking you to help me look for that next opportunity that I may not necessarily be exposed to, as well as be a sounding board as I identify other opportunities or I'm thinking about what could be the the next path that I take, giving me feedback and guidance because of your success. You know, how can I take my my own career to the next progression? So I, I think you typically within your your career, you have a very limited number of sponsors, people mm -hmm. that, that work for you and, and are actively looking out for your career progression, your next career step. You will have many, many mentors throughout the course of your career because as you grow and develop, the competencies that you want to grow change. And so you'll always sort of seek out those mentors that have demonstrated strength within that competency and, and you get that learning and that understanding and knowledge from them, and that you can provide them some unique value or, or viewpoint from another part of the organization, another part of the business, another level of the organization. Mm. And then coaches are, are typically are, are your current manager, just from my experience, and, and they tend to be very transactional. Please help me solve this problem today <laughs> so that I can deliver success. I'm really fascinated by this idea of sponsorship and I can see how that works when you've been with an organization, I guess, for a reasonable length of time. Perhaps you've identified somebody who has, as you say, exposure in areas that you don't have. How might somebody who's worked with an organization for a shorter period of time or who doesn't necessarily see immediate opportunities in their current organization use that same kind of leverage to move? 
It can also be through your network. I think your sponsor doesn't necessarily have to be within your own organization, right? But they tend to be more senior than where you are today because they they are the ones that have a visibility across the ecosystem. I think you're right. The way I articulated was within my own organization, but I think some have also referred to it as a board of directors because it may not be a single person. You could have representation within your own organization, representation from an outside organization that's similar to your own mm. company or industry that you want to be in. Uh, it could be someone completely dis- discreet. What, it, what you don't want to do is put your parents, your child, your siblings on your board of directors who are going to be biased one way or the other, right? There are great sounding boards when you're when you're st- struggling or want to vent, but you definitely want to create this sponsor or board of directors approach with, again, those diverse sort of views. I, I would also suggest ensuring that you have gender diversity in your board of directors, right? You yeah. want those varying views of opinion to be able to give you sometimes the hard message that that's not a good job for you or these are the skills or competencies that you would need to develop or grow. The nice part is by having that sounding board, that sponsorship, you can then decide who are the mentors that will help you sort of be able to achieve that. And so they all sort of tie together in some capacity. Yeah, I love that. I love the, the idea of having that board of directors that you can you know, go to for specialist advice in different areas at different times, depending on where you find yourself. I'm hearing that there's a sense of needing to be really proactive to put that together though as well, isn't there? Absolutely. I think early in my career, when I talk about doing the automotive space, I was in that role for for 11 years. And I think a lot of that was related to the fact that I didn't proactively think about building my network. I didn't proactively think about, am I being very strategic and deliberate about the mentors that I'm choosing? I didn't have a sponsor at all. And so, which was fine. I did well within that, you know, that career. I continued to get promoted. You could definitely go through your entire career and not have those things. Mm. But I do think you will get to a certain point in your career where you'll have to decide like how do I push myself outside of my comfort zone and a sponsor is going to do that for you whereas a mentor is going to just help you grow specifically often within that existing role or, or maybe plus one role. Yeah oh, that's fascinating. What advice or encouragement would you give to people to put themselves out there to additional learning in their work? Yeah, I'm a firm believer of continuing education. I'm not sure my pocketbook is as firm a believer in continuing education, but it's interesting for me. And to go outside of your current domain of expertise, if I look at my formal education, I've always solicited something that sort of pushed me outside the boundaries of what I was currently in. If you think I was in a tech company and I applied to law school, like most people would look at that and say they have nothing in common. I would say doing that definitely set me in a, in, a, in a better position to be more comfortable in the more senior roles I took. If I think about speaking to a CEO or a board of directors is almost the same thing as speaking in front of a judge. If I think about helping an organization create a data strategy, that's very similar to looking at statutory law and trying to pick it apart for the individual pieces and linearly troubleshoot to a resolution. If I think about 
bringing business stakeholders to the table to get them to agree on what is our first data analytics project going to be. That's very similar to negotiation strategy that you learn in law school. And so there's so many transferable skills when you start to think about how do I think about the next continuing education, the next formal education that will build skills and competencies that I can apply, even if I don't go into that that formal sort of role. And I work for an amazing company, right, that definitely encourages learning. Satya has been quoted multiple times of saying, we will be a learn-it-all organization. I almost feel encouraged to solicit learning that's outside of my comfort zone, that's outside of technology, that's necessarily outside of the data domain, Mm -hmm. and having the support of the organization to do that. And I tend to be just a type A personality. So I always want to, you know, sort of push myself to the next level. I think that, you know, that was definitely the impetus. If I look at, for example, the Stanford graduate program that I finished last year, that was, you know, just me being a little, a little aggressive on myself to say, hey, you haven't done anything formal education or formal training in a while. You know, how do you think about things like product management? And so I went, I went and took a, you know, formal courses on the on that type of thing where I wanted to learn more. I wanted to understand sort of my stakeholders and my business uh, more effectively and efficiently. And that sense of pushing yourself, and you've said a couple of times, stepping outside your comfort zone, working outside of your sphere of expertise in that moment, that carries on into life for you, doesn't it? I'm fascinated by what you do for leisure. <laughs> Yes, yes. So, so for for leisure, I tend to uh, train for Ironman triathlons. <laughs> yeah, I don't think most people would view a twelve-hour bike ride as leisure, but uh, I don't know that my rear end does ever every time I do it either. But again, for me, it it is competing with myself. I I know I will never. There's some fabulous female athletes out there that are just amazing. Uh, if you ever have a chance to watch an Ironman competition, even outside of the Olympics, just local races, there's just phenomenal talent. For for me, it's always about competing with myself. Can I do better than I did last time? Can I, you know, run further? Can I bike further? Can I swim without drowning? And so so for me, it, it is sort of, can I challenge myself? And, and being the mother of four girls, there's also the I need to get away from all these crazy drama in my house. And so it's a great way to sort of unplug, force you to unplug from work, force you to unplug from people asking you for things. I, I find that women tend to try to solve for, or at least I do, I try to solve problems for everyone, whether it's at work, whether it's at home. And for me, training is that one time where I don't have to fix anything. I don't have to, I don't have to sit on a conference call or on a Zoom meeting or a Teams meeting. I don't have have to fix the fact that you didn't get invited to the to the birthday party. I don't have to decide what's for dinner. I can just have some time to to clear my head, to think, and again push myself a little bit physically outside of what I would normally do. Yeah, and I guess hanging on to what's important in that for some people, especially over the period of the pandemic, that's become a little bit lost, hasn't it? As we've we've sort of constricted a little bit and we're starting to expand again into things that we perhaps used to do. What advice would you give, I guess, in closing today to anybody listening who's feeling a bit stuck or who listens to your inspiring decisions and and stories and thinks, "I, I can't do that. That's beyond me. That's not something I would be able to do. My advice would be, we tend to be our own worst critic. 
right? And, and so give yourself some grace, give yourself some love and comfort and permission. And it's okay to fail. Like, uh, oh my gosh, I can't tell you how many times I, particularly when I was first le learning to ride my bike and you clip your foot in, I fell over in front of a car, right? Because I couldn't figure out how to unclip my foot. There have been many, many a time I've been sitting in a meeting and said something and realized, wow, I totally didn't get the conversation in the room. <laughs> that, that was not the thing I should have said, mm. right? And so I'm constantly telling my team that it's okay to fail. What, what's worse is if you don't learn from the failure. So if I fell over in front of a car on my bike and I didn't then the next time try a different way to get my foot unclipped from the pedal, then shame on me, right, for not doing that. If I made a mistake at work and then I didn't learn something from that mistake that I could then apply to a similar situation later. But give yourself grace to fail. Like it's okay. Everybody is going through this life in an, in an iterative, agile way. And so absolutely, you should feel empowered. You should feel capable. You bring an amazing, unique perspective that no one in the world has the view that you do. Nobody in the world has the experiences you do. I don't think anybody has a, you know, a, a career path the same as mine or a life path the same as mine. And so that allows me a unique perspective. And you're exactly the same way. You have a different life experience. You have a different upbringing and background and family and work experience. And all of those things make you unique. And you should feel empowered to have that voice. Yeah. I'm thinking about the last, one of the last things you wrote in your wonderful post about this little girl is me, by the way, which I saw maybe a month or so ago. And the last piece of advice I wrote it down this afternoon was never give up, even when it feels really, really hard. And I hear that. I'm hearing that coming through really clearly from you. Absolutely. I think that's a wonderful place to leave our conversation. Thank you so much for joining me today. It's been inspirational. Claire, thank you so much. I appreciate the opportunity. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode of Unlocking Leadership, you can subscribe through all the regular podcast channels. And please do leave us a rating and review there. We'd also love you to share any episodes you've found interesting on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, or wherever, so that others can join the conversation and share their experiences. This podcast was made in association with Cornell. It was produced and edited by Nick Hilton for Podo. Thank you.